grandfather's here. Can't you tell me I'm sick? He'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how was the sick? Huh? I brought you a special present. What is it? It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. It was a time when life didn't seem so complicated. Marriage is what brings us together today. What? 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 I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice, hmm? A courtly age. Of gentle conversation. I won't always come for you. But how can you be sure? This is true love. Oh, no. Is this a kissing book? No. Actually, there was a lot of treachery. Peril. <clears throat> and revenge. Prepare to die. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> There were affairs of state. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. And affairs of the heart. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. I've seen worse. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. It's more than turning. What's the difference? We've got him. Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Goodbye. It's a story of love. A tale of adventure. It's as real as the feelings you feel. They're kissing again. Someday you may not mind so much. The Princess Bride. Not just your basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, ho-hum fairy tale. Hello and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spataro and I am once again happily joined by Darren and Ruth Sutherland. Hey guys. Hi, happy to be here. Hi Paul. I'm glad, glad you guys are available to come on again. Uh, we, we, you know, every time we plan something it, it seems to be months in the making when we uh, try to do this. But uh, I actually... You know, pulling the curtain back, I sent a message to Darren and Ruth at, uh, I don't know, what, 9 o'clock this morning? Right. And said, are you available? And they were like, yeah, I guess we are. <laughs> so that was cool. I appreciate you you making some time for me tonight. Uh, it's always worth the wait to talk to you, Paul. And when something like that comes up, we just have to jump at the opportunity. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So we're here today to talk about the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride. Now, I understand, and I think we even mentioned it the last time you were on. Ruth, this is your favorite movie ever? Yes, my all-time favorite. Okay, so what's your history with it? When did you first see it, and what? It, and how many times since? Oh, well, I saw it when it first came out, but I have totally lost track of the number of times I've seen it, because for me it is so rewatchable, and so I've watched it at home a lot as well as any opportunity where there's like an anniversary showing or a special location. Just seeing it with a crowd is so much fun. We've been in theaters where, you know, the crowd applauds the various entrances of the actors and, of course, quotes along with some of the famous lines. And one of my favorite times we saw it was outdoors at like a stone amphitheater with a rose garden around it. So just lots of fond memories of, of seeing that movie time and time again. 
She really has seen it so many times. I, I don't think Microsoft Excel could keep track of the number of times. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any idea how many times you've seen it on the big screen? Oh, I mean, probably I don't more know. than 20. I would oh, say wow. definitely more than 20 over the years. I mean, we just saw it last fall for the 30th anniversary screening at a local theater and we're seeing it again next month at the carolina theater which does retro film festivals they're having a screening of it and that's the place we see it there every three years or so and that's the one where everybody comes and quotes along and applauds just the idea that it's 30 years old is troublesome to me Uh, i agree (laughs) now i i've I've only seen this once on a big screen and I've I've probably seen it as many times in total as you've seen it on the big screen. Okay. Oh, that's still a lot of times, Paul. (laughs) That's more than I've seen most movies. (laughs) Uh, Actually, yeah, you know what? It might be more than I've seen most. Maybe I I haven't even seen quite that many, but but I've seen it a a fair number of times over the years. I've always enjoyed this one. And I remember when this was in the movie theater, the reason, you know, my impetus to go see this was uh, because I wanted to go see it because Andre the Giant was in it. Oh. At, at that time in the 80s, I was a fan of the professional wrestling on TV and at Madison Square Garden and the big WrestleMania events and all of that stuff that they had going on. And uh, I, I, I always thought, you know, Andre the Giant was a major player in that from when I was a little kid. Right. So when I saw that he was in this movie, I was like, oh, I got to see this one. That, that could be fun. And I don't think that I'm the target audience. And I don't think 30 years ago I was the target audience for this movie. <laughs> But I still found it to be charming, and I continue to find it to be charming. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Absolutely. I I think this movie works on many levels. People like Ruth connect with it at a very deeper level. But I think that anybody who gives it a fair chance would uh, certainly feel that way about it. And Andre the Giant is awesome in it. So you got what you wanted to see. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I thought he was terrific in it. But I was surprised by how many people I thought were terrific in it at that time. Mm. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have exceptionally high expectations going into it and it, it met and surpassed my expectations by quite a bit. I, I know what you mean. It's, uh, you know, the movie, sadly, when it first came out, it wasn't very successful. And that was because the marketing uh, department didn't really know how to market it even. So uh, I know even Rob Reiner, bemoans you know that being unfortunate that that happened it made a modest profit but certainly not much but it really took people you know word of mouth people telling uh, others about the movie before it really became this cult classic over the period of the next five years or so after it came out yeah it was more more of a hit i think at home than it was in the theater uh, according to wikipedia which you know we don't we don't always totally trust them but according to them the budget for the movie was 16 million dollars and the box office was 30.9, so not quite double its budget. And I think at that time, double the budget was the standard to make it a hit. Right. So, yeah. or, or to make it profitable. I mean, let me right. change that. Uh, yeah. So it was, you know, it was it was right on the cusp of profitable, but not quite. But I'm sure in the home video market, it's it's more than made up for that. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> now this is based on a 1973 novel. And being as much of a fan of the movie as you are, did you ever read it? Oh, definitely. And multiple times. And <laughs> listened also to the audio book that Rob Reiner read at one point. That was great. 
Now, uh, did you see the movie and then later read it, or had you read it before you saw it? I've read the book after seeing the film, so I wasn't familiar with the book before. Okay, so when you read the book, you already had the images in mind of who was who. Absolutely. Well, let me let me ask you this: Are the, uh, is the story uh, pretty, you know, on point in the movie, or do they change a lot between the book and oh, the movie? So very faithful uh, with scenes and lines, yet. They just could not fit everything from the book into the film. Like there's not enough time to put every aspect in. And, you know, a scene here or there that would have just been too expensive to film based on kind of their special effects and things that they had available at the time. Yeah, so that's uh, I would agree. I haven't read the actual book, but I've heard the audio book riding in the car, listening to it with Ruth. And it is it's a very faithful film. And I guess that's because Rob Reiner was a fan of the book before it was ever even published because his father, Carl Reiner, knew William Goldman. So William Goldman had actually given Carl Reiner a draft of the book when it was still being written. So Rob Reiner read it then and fell in love with it right then. So we talk about somebody who really has loved the book from the beginning. So it was really important to Rob Reiner to be as faithful as possible to the original book. And uh, that's the only thing I've ever heard him himself say is that he sadly had to leave two or three scenes out just because he didn't have the budget for them. Okay. That's it. And I'm looking as, as you're telling me that I, I'm looking at the uh, Wikipedia entry where it basically mirrors what you were saying. Rob Reiner had been enamored with Goldman's book ever since he was given it as a childhood gift from his father, Carl Reiner, realized he wanted to make the film adaptation after successfully demonstrating his filmmaking skill with the release of This Is Spinal Tap in 1984. During production of Stand By Me, released in 1986, Reiner had spoke to an executive at Paramount Pictures regarding what his next film would be and suggested the adaptation of The Princess Bride. He was told they couldn't do that, leading Reiner to discover that several studios had previously attempted to bring Goldman's book to the big screen, to the big screen without success. That's interesting. And they had tried yeah. it. Apparently, Richard Lester had been signed to direct it at one time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's his other, other directors also attempted to adapt the book, including Francois Truffaut, Robert Redford and Norman Jewison. And at one point, Christopher Reeve was interested in playing Wesley. Oh, <laughs> that would have been so different. But I, I do love him. Yeah, that's, that's it's always interesting when you get something like this that's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, in one of the earliest episodes of this show, we had done uh, the the mini series Lonesome Dove. Oh and yes, that's one of my all time favorites, and it starred Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Urich. And the the book, the story rather, was originally written by Larry McMurtry with the intention of it starring John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda. Oh. And I just, and, and when I hear that, you know, when I heard that, I just think of how different it would have been if it right. had been done that way. But, and, <laughs> and the same thing with this type of uh, story. But sometimes these behind the scenes things are really interesting to know. Probably yeah. a good idea for me to give the plot of the movie at this point. Oh, uh, yes. And what I'll say, I'll, I, I'll, I won't read this, the first and last sentence, which is just basically saying that uh, there's a framing sequence for the story where Peter Fork plays, uh, what's it, Fred Savage's grandfather. And at the time, Fred Savage was, I guess, a young teen. And he's homesick, and the grandfather comes over, and uh, over his objection, he starts reading him this story. And every once in a while during the movie, it'll interrupt to go back 
to that framing sequence, and you could see that Fred Savage is getting more and more interested in the story as it's going on, uh, and at, until the end when he's, you know, shows that he loved it. So <laughs> the story that's being read to Fred Savage is a beautiful young woman named Buttercup lives on a farm in the fictional country of Florin. Whenever she orders the farmhand Wesley to do chores for her, he complies and answers, as you wish. Eventually, she realizes he loves her and admits her love for him. Wesley leaves to seek his fortune so they can marry, but his ship is attacked by the dread pirate Roberts. Five years later, believing Wesley is dead, Buttercup reluctantly agrees to marry Prince Humperdinck, heir to the throne of Florin. Before the wedding, she is kidnapped by three outlaws. A short Sicilian boss named Vizzini, a gigantic wrestler from Greenland named Fezic, and a Spanish fencing master named Indigo Montoya, who seeks revenge against the six-fingered man who killed his father. The outlaws are pursued by Prince Humperdinck with a complement of soldiers and also by a masked man in black. The man in black catches up to the outlaws at the top of the Cliffs of Insanity, where he defeats Indigo in a, in a duel and knocks him unconscious chokes Fezzik until he blacks out and kills Vicini by tricking him into drinking poison. He takes Buttercup prisoner and they flee, stopping to rest at the edge of a gorge. When Buttercup correctly guesses that he is Dread Pirate Roberts, she becomes enraged at him for killing Wesley. As he suddenly notices Humperdinck and his men appear in the distance, she shoves him down into the gorge and wishes death upon him. She then realizes he is Wesley himself when he replies, As you wish. She throws herself into the gorge after him, and together they enter the dangerous fire swamp. When they are captured on the other side of the fire swamp by Humperdinck and his sadistic, sadistic six-fingered vizier, Count Rugen, Buttercup agrees to return with Humperdinck in exchange for Wesley's release. However, Humperdinck secretly orders Rugen to lock Wesley in the castle torture chamber. When Buttercup expresses unhappiness at marrying Humperdinck, he promises to search for Wesley but his real plan is to start a war with the neighboring country of Gilder by killing Buttercup and framing Gilder for her death. Buttercup taunts Humperdinck after learning that he never tried to find Wesley. Enraged, Humperdinck tortures Wesley almost to death. Meanwhile, Indigo and Fezzik meet when Humperdinck orders a gang of goons to arrest the thieves in a nearby forest, and Fezzik tells Indigo about Rugen. Indigo decides they need Wesley's help to get into the castle, and when he hears cries of anguish, he realizes they must be from Wesley. Indigo and, Fezli Indigo and Fezzik find Wesley and fear him dead. Upon bringing him to a folk healer, Miracle Max, however, they learn Wesley is only mostly dead, and Max revives him into a state of heavy paralysis. After Wesley, Indigo, and Fezzik invade the castle, Humperdinck orders the wedding ceremony shortened, and Indigo finds and kills Rugen in a duel repeatedly reciting his, gre his greeting of vengeance. Hello, my name is Indigo Matoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> Wesley finds Buttercup, who is about to commit suicide, and assures her that her marriage is invalid because she never said I do. Still partly paralyzed, he bluffs his way out of a duel with Humperdinck, shares a passionate kiss with Buttercup, then rides away with Buttercup, Indigo, and Fezzik. And again, it goes back to uh, Fred Savage and Peter Falk, where... Uh, he asks him if he could come back the next day to read the book, and then Peter Falk replies, as you wish. Oh, yeah. so touching. <clears throat> yeah, that, I think that, that was a really cool framing sequence, and I guess we could start with that. Uh, I guess, because I, I assume the, the original book doesn't have that in it. It does, actually. Oh, it does, just, really? 
the the book was written so cleverly. Um, it was written so that as the author was sharing the story as if it was a story that his father had read to him. So it had that same element. Mm-hmm. And then also he would interrupt himself as the book goes along to interject things like, you know, oh, he thought this when he was a boy or he had this con- conversation with his dad about the story along the way. So it is very much reflective of the book. Oh, that's pretty cool. And I, I thought as a framing sequence, I thought it was very well done that it didn't impose upon the story at all, but that it gave you a way to get into the story very quickly, to become familiar with the characters very quickly, to allow them to give you a little exposition and still move the story along very quickly. This is uh, this is not a long film. It's only 98 minutes long, and there's a lot of stuff put in there. Yes. <laughs> No. It is. It is a great framing sequence. You're right. I, and Peter Falk and Fred Savage just play it so well. I mean, you know, their amount of time on screen is very, very small. But Rob Reiner sprinkles it in just right because he, you know, you get used to it early on. OK, I'm going to the film's going to be interrupted. And then he starts stringing them out further and further apart. And you forget it's going to happen until uh, it suddenly does again. So it, it makes it even funnier later on. Yeah, I agree. I think it's 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 very well paced as far as that goes. Now, uh, the first time you guys were on, we were talking uh, Adventures of Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that movie, as anybody who listens to our discussion of that one would know. Yes. Uh, but one of the things I always loved about that was the swashbuckling, swashbuckling aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And this movie has that. Oh, yes, and, and it has favorite. it really well done. I mean, just the whole thing. Uh, Indigo Montoya, who would think that this guy is the same guy who's on the show Homeland? <laughs> I don't know if you guys watch Homeland at all. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> but Man- Mandy Patinkin plays this part so well. It's like, it's like he was born to play it. And, and I, I don't know, like I almost have like this feeling like he should be an Errol Flynn type in real life. And and he's just not, you know, but but he, he does it so well in this movie. He's so good. I'm glad you mentioned that, Paul, because, you know, he's wonderful to hear talk about this film. I mean, you know, he has had that long run on Chicago Hope uh, and then he's in Homeland, like you said, right now. So he's and plus all of his Broadway work where he's won Tony Awards. So he has a very well-rounded career. And yet you hear him talk this about this movie and it's like the most important thing he ever did. And he talks about seeing it for the first time with his wife in the theater and he was crying during it and she was wanting to know why. And he was saying, I never dreamed I would be a part of something this good. And it's, you know, it's just wonderful to know that that movie means so much to someone like him and he is brilliant in it. You're right. Yeah, I, I definitely think he is. Now, this is also let's just, let's go through the cast a little bit. This is the first exposure I had to a lot of the people in this movie, hmm. uh, or at least numerous people. This, so you know, it's it's kind of a combination of both. So I shouldn't actually say that. But Carrie Elways and uh, Robin Wright, who are the, who are two leads in the movie, this is the first time I ever saw either of them. Yep. And I thought that they both played their parts very, very well. I think they were well cast in the parts as well. Absolutely. I mean, Carrie Elwes is great in it. He had done very little before this. We had never seen him before either. I think I remember Rob Reiner saying that he saw 
was it Lady Jane uh, that Carrie always did maybe the year before? I think so. Uh, that he saw him in and cast him because of that. And then Robin Wright, I know we've heard um, Rob Reiner mention how he saw hundreds and hundreds of actresses and it got down to where it was just a couple of weeks before filming before Robin Wright finally came in and he was just like, oh, finally, this is the right person. So, yeah, it's they're both amazing in it. And, yeah, we hadn't seen them before either. But now uh, now let's go to some people that, that I, I've seen before, and I assume you both have as well. Uh, and we'll start with Chris Sarandon. <laughs> now, I was originally familiar with him from Dog Day Afternoon and then even more so from uh, Fright Night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> And, and he, he can play a creepy guy, and he does in this movie. Uh, he He's not one of the bigger, or not one of the more memorable people, but he's just slimy. I think that's yes. the best way to put it for this one. <laughs> yes, he does a really good job with that. I mean, he's, yeah, slimy's a really good word. He gets the part just right, just yeah. what you need for the bad guy. Yeah, just enough to really make you root against him. Mm-hmm. And then in the scene when he uh, he's finally confronted by uh, Indigo and he just turns and runs, it's like you know he shows shows his uh, you know, his his true colors. Yeah, he's a coward. <laughs> and now Christopher Guest, I was familiar with from uh, Saturday Night Live, right? At this point, and he's also you know he's another one where <clears throat> I, he he almost has the. Claude Rains type feel from uh, from from Robin Hood. Ah, good oh. point. You know, just the way the way he delivers his lines, it, it it almost has that feel of like that confidence in when when he talks and I don't know, just you know he uh, he he's again just like Christopher uh, what you call just like Chris Sarandon. He's he's appropriately slimy. Yeah. And, and, Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, they do a, a really great job together playing off of each other so well. I mean, I, I love the scene when um, Christopher, it's, it's Christopher Guest uh, as Count Rugen is, you know, pretending he's going to take Wesley back to his ship. And Wesley says something to the effect of, you know, we are men of action. Lies do not become us. It, it's just, you know, little scenes like that, they play so well. And you just believe them as bad guys one is clearly bad and the other one is trying to hide that he's bad but it's just uh, they're both really perfect and uh, he he meets a very very fitting end uh <laughs> when just I, I i think it's it's got a good emotional beat to it when uh indigo you know it says promise me anything yes yes i'll promise you anything and he's i want my father back you son of a bitch and he kills him yes. oh, I well, think that's, that's a wonderful scene powerful yes i i just think that was you know, just just you know, it gave this movie, which is a fantasy swashbuckling comedy, mm. and the whole Indigo Montoya thing and the love story with, uh, you know, with, with uh, Robin Wright and, and Carrie Elwes. But that's what gives the movie its its little bit of gravitas to kind of ground it and just not let it be just pure comedy, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's it's sprinkled in just perfectly. Yes. Yes. You get a range of emotions with the film. Yeah, you really do. It, it and like you said, it's a short film, but it really packs. Besides a lot of scenes, it packs a lot of emotions in in just a short time. 
Now, uh, I think my only familiarity with Wallace Shawn uh-huh. was a recurring guest role he had on Taxi before this. Now, I know he did uh, whatever it was, uh, My Dinner with Andre or something like, you know, whatever that was. I've never seen that, so I can't uh, comment on that one. I think that was his claim to fame, though, going into and, this. And he's just so good in this. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember exactly what it was, but somebody else was cast in that role first, and then they had to back out. Danny, uh, no, I don't think he was ever cast, was he? Or was they were just considering Danny DeVito. But um, I remember Wallace Shawn was cast sort of late, and he always felt that he was going to be replaced. <laughs> so he was apparently very earnest on set to make sure that he did everything just perfect. And finally, Rob Reiner figured out that he was just nervous that they were going to replace him at any point in time. But he's so good in the movie that you almost feel sorry for him when he dies because it's like, oh, we don't get to see him again. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I don't feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for us when he dies. <laughs> but he, yeah, he's, right. his, his level of overconfidence and and just the way you know he he's this little man, and the way like he talks down to Andre the Giant. Yes. Do you remember when I found you? You know that whole thing. He's, <laughs> you know, it, it's just he he delivers the lines perfectly. And and I you know I think I'm probably getting repetitive here because I'm saying that about everyone, but that's kind of the truth about everyone in this movie. It really is. And I think that's part of the magic of the film because you know when do you see so many characters? that do everything just right. Mm-hmm. You know, the chemistry is great. The delivery is right. The looks are right. Uh, body language, just so much. I think but, that's why this movie is so uh, well loved because it doesn't really fit what you would expect to be a movie that would endure and even grow in popularity over 30 years. But it, it has that magic to it. And I think a lot of that has to be given to Rob Reiner. And I think, you know, he, he made sure he got the right performances out of the guys and mm-hmm. probably more importantly, made sure he had the right people cast in the roles mm-hmm. so that he, you know, he might not have had to work as hard to get the good performances because he got the people who just kind of fit the parts. That's a good point. Like doing a lot of work up front to get the right cast together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about uh, Mandy Patinkin. We talked a little bit about Wallace Shawn and the third guy in their crew was Andre the Giant. And what, yeah. like, what a just a strange trio that is. <laughs> just so visually interesting with the just the size differences. Mm-hmm. The size differences, just the and the the, the just the very very different way that they uh, deliver lines, and and they mm-hmm. all kind of blended together really well. And Andre the Giant. While you feel sorry for the Man- Mandy Patinkin's character, Andre the Giant is kind of the one who you just, like, you don't sense there's any ulterior motive to him at all. He's just kind of along for the ride. Yeah, he, he just really is, you know, true through to the heart. It's like every word that comes out of his mouth is sincere to mm-hmm. everyone. <laughs> well, and you, you have that scene early on when uh, when the three of them are on the boat and I, I think it's it's just kind of an interesting thing, and I think probably very very difficult to write. So uh, I'll assume it's the same in the novel, and I'll give you credit for, give the initial credit there. But you have three the three bad guys effectively at this point in the movie, and they have it written in a way to endear you to two of them mm-hmm. right off the yeah. bat because the two of them are doing that rhyming thing. Yes, right. 
And and Wallace Shawn is getting all angry at them. They cut it out, and I mean it. And then you hear Andre the Giant say, "Anybody want a peanut?" <laughs> it just you know, it, it, it's just they managed again. I hate to overuse the word, but they managed to be charming, yes. and at the same time have you dislike him. <laughs> I agree a hundred percent. That's a wonderful introduction scene, and just everything about it's perfect. Uh, e- even the music right there at that point in time, it's just sort of like. It's this playful little swinging melody that just makes you think of, yeah, these are two friends having fun together, no matter what situation they're in. Mm -hmm. Even though they're with this guy and they're taking orders from him, you never feel that they're in his league as far as the, you know, the evil end of it. Right. Right. I agree. And they make that clear as soon as they learn that there's going to be, you know, murder involved both of them are protesting like no that's not what we were told (laughs) yeah so i guess on my actor list the next guy to mention and i guess we can mention two of them at the same time it's billy crystal and carol kane ah yes outstanding now billy crystal is always fun i don't think i've ever seen billy crystal in anything where i didn't think he was fun and i know he and rob reiner are very close friends Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there was a little bit of, you know, we got to figure out what part he can do. Right. Uh, Carol Kane, on the other hand, I've never been much of a fan of. Mm. <laughs> I always found her just to be a little irritating. <laughs> so I, uh, go ahead. I, I knew and I knew her just, you know, from before from Taxi. So it was really my only exposure to her before. I think my first exposure to her was the movie When a Stranger Calls. Oh, okay. Which was like a big letdown. I remember the commercial for that, you know, where they show the thing, you know, he's in the house, get out. Uh, and uh, I saw the movie, and, and like that's done in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> and it was like, you know, that kind of was a letdown. So maybe that's the reason why I'm, I've never been a big fan of hers. I don't know. Uh, but but in, in this scene, they're just kind of fun. And I think the thing that always comes to you from them is just the uh, have fun storming the castle, that part of it. Classic. And we have heard that Billy Crystal, this is one of, was the all-time favorite part that he's played. And he has said that when fans see him and they say that quote to him, he will stop and give them an autograph just because he loves the film so much and he's happy to meet fans of The Princess Bride. Well, now that you've said that, if I ever do run into Billy Crystal, I'll be sure to say that. Please do. <laughs> and we're always looking out for him in the airports in case we get to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do remember him making a guest appearance. You know, he wasn't fam- particularly famous yet either, but I remember him making a guest appearance on All in the Family oh. as one of Mike's friends. Oh, oh that that is a nice bit of trivia yeah. there. So that's you know, like I said, I think they've been good friends. Well, and then also uh, Rob Reiner directed him in When Harry Met Sally. Right, that's a good movie. Yeah, well, I covered that one with with Rob and. Uh, yeah, we, we both gave it very high grades. <laughs> Not surprised. Deserves it. So now that's pretty much it for my guest cast here, or for my casting. Unless there's anybody else who stood out to you guys that you wanted to mention. Are you going to cover the the cameos? Uh, well, who who in particular are you thinking of? I, I have to throw in Peter Cook because okay. I'm such a huge fan of Peter Cook. He plays the clergyman. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the really bad list, but I know, uh, you know, he, uh, a big, 
stand-up comedian star from the UK from back in the 60s sort of, you know, created a, a counterculture sort of uh, bit of comedy that became uh, popular there and then partnered with Dudley Moore for a successful TV series and lots of successful movies before Dudley Moore moved to the U.S. But it's great to see him in it. He has a very small part and he's barely recognizable. But for me, because I'm a Peter Cook fan, it's wonderful to see him in that film. He's well utilized in it too, because he, uh, he, he becomes, you know, the, like the, he's what gives them the ability to delay the wedding long enough to do something about it, or at least give, give you hope that they're going to. And, and it, it, he is, it, it is a pretty comical role. Now he, Oh, wow. I didn't know that. He passed away in 1995. He was only 57 years old. Yeah, that's it's really a shame. I think he would have uh, been a bigger star if he had uh, lived longer. I remember when he passed away, I was very sad. Yeah, I'm trying to just I was trying to take a good quick look to see. Here we go. Here's his filmography. Bedazzled. That was with uh, Dudley Moore, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it was. And uh, not only, but also, I think, was the TV series that they did uh, in the late 60s, early 70s in the UK that ran for a few years. He has has a very lengthy or a fairly lengthy filmography, Mm. but not a lot of stuff that were big hits here in the States. No, not at all. Yes, he's he's very much a I would say he's barely known here in the US, but in the UK, he was voted like sometime you know 10 years or so after his death as still like one of the five most influential comedians of all time so mm. he's very much better known over there yeah i do i do remember like seeing little clips not not too much but seeing little clips of him and dudley moore when they were uh doing their show mm-hmm. anybody else any other cameos that uh caught your eye uh mel smith as the albino i thought did a great job with that part he um, he was in the British comedy, not the nine o'clock news, which the U.S. comedy, not necessarily the news was based on. He did that okay. show with Rowan Atkinson, who, of course, everyone here knows as Mr. Bean. And we know as Blackadder. Yes, I was just going to say, I'm not much of a fan of Mr. Bean, but I love Blackadder. <laughs> so those are the other two cameos that I think that we always think of. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't manage to get Rowan Atkinson in this somewhere. Yeah, no, that would have been good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and now I, I think it's worth talking for a couple of minutes. Uh, you guys made an appearance on another show talking about this movie. And yeah. why don't you touch on that and then we'll have the same conversation. Okay. Uh, on Soundtrack Alley by Randy Andrews. So he does a podcast where he selects a film and then takes a close examination of the score that goes along with that. So good conversation there. And he's got a great podcast. So we recommend people check that out. And, and in particular, that episode about Princess Bride. Yes, that episode in particular will be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know what? I'm going I'm to ask you guys to put when I when I post this episode, uh, put a link to it on the uh, Is It Yours page. So this way okay. anybody interested in listening to it. You know, we'll, we'll have it available to them easily uh, because we are, we are going to mention the soundtrack now, but we're, I'm, I'm sure we're not going to go into anywhere near as much depth as you did on that. Uh, the sound, the music in this movie is by Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits fame. Right. Uh, and why don't you talk a little bit about what you thought about that? Oh, it, it's a wonderful soundtrack, actually. 
this was part of the conversation that we had with Randy because we compared this to another film, similar film that was out around the same time, which is Lady Hawk. And Lady Hawk's a really great fun fantasy romance film, but it has a soundtrack that definitely dates it to the 1980s because it's sort of this pop fluffy uh, soundtrack. But The Princess Bride has this wonderful classic soundtrack, a wonderful variety of music, uh, you know, majestic music, lighthearted, fun music. Uh, but it it's uh, taking that classical sort of approach makes the movie timeless, which I think helps it remain, you know, not dated here 30 years later. And even though the vocal song for the closing credits uh, is just a beautiful sort of standard uh, song that again fits in any decade. It's a really nice soundtrack. Now, uh, just looking at the Wikipedia page, and I'm going to read another uh, comment from that about the soundtrack. It's, in his audio commentary of the film on the special edition DVD, director Rob Reiner said that only Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits could create a soundtrack to capture the film's quirky yet romantic nature. Reiner was an admirer of Knopfler's work, but did not know him before working on the film. He sent the script to him, hoping he would agree to score the film. Knopfler agreed on one condition, that somewhere in the film, Reiner would include the USS Coral Sea baseball cap, which had been modified to say USS Ural Sea. He wore as Marty DeBerge in This Is Spinal Tap. <laughs> Reiner was unable to produce the original cap, but did include a similar cap in the grandson's room. Knopfler later said he was joking. <laughs> oh, what a story! Yeah, that's kind of interesting, and yeah, it, it is a a different kind of score. I'm not the score uh, person that some of the other people on the True True Freaks Network are. Some mm -hmm. people, you know, this this. I mean, I usually go to Scott, but there's a few people other than him. But they'll, you know, they'll sit in the car just listening to film scores, and oh, yeah. you know, I don't I don't go that far with it. I do enjoy it my, my theory on scores is if it's a good enough movie you're probably not noticing it as mm -hmm. you're watching the movie the first time uh, and what I always go to is Raiders of the Lost Ark which is one of the most recognizable scores I know mm -hmm. uh, and yet the first time I saw it I didn't even notice it it mm -hmm. wasn't uh, until repeated viewings that, I, that it stood out to me because it just blended so well with the movie and created the mood for the movie that I wasn't thinking about it Right. I think that's a sign of a fantastic uh, score is when it intermixes with the film and helps carry you forward and helps set the scene and the atmosphere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. it, I think it does do that in this movie. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's, you know, just the, the movie itself is just again, it's only 98 minutes long. And there's a lot packed in it, and yet it doesn't. It feels like it goes by so quick when you're watching it. It really and, does. And that's part of that. You know that there's no part in this movie where it just slows down and becomes, you know, a little bit of a chore because they need to uh, get certain information out to you. That just doesn't happen in this movie. They manage to do everything so smoothly, and that includes not, you know not only the story but also the score. I agree very much, Paul. I, you're right. This movie never has a lull. And, uh, and I would say that with the music as well. I think I mentioned, I mentioned the friends song 
a little earlier, which is a nice, fun one. But, you know, Buttercup's theme is great and Wesley's theme is great. And the music in the fire swamp is is great. And the music during the sword fight's great. But they're all just so appropriate that if you're not intentionally trying to think about them, they just blend right in and it becomes part of the whole. And that's perfect. Yeah, I agree. So now uh, I'm just trying to think if there's any other aspect of this that we should uh, hit on before we move on. I, yeah, you uh, actually, Ruth, when we started talking, you before we started recording, you said something about lines from the movie. I'm assuming there's a few of your very favorites in here. Oh, it's full of my favorites. So many, so many memorable, quotable lines. So why don't, why don't we hit on that? And, and let, me, let me ask you this way, if, if you're able to answer this. Are there memorable, quotable lines that you use frequently in your everyday life? <laughs> oh, well, a couple of really short, easy ones. Inconceivable and As You Wish. <laughs> Classics. Yeah. I'm right. required to use As You Wish regularly. <laughs> And Ruth does like to use inconceivable very often. And she likes to say, have fun storming the castle yes. for no reason at all, <laughs> just whenever. <laughs> I would think Peter Cook might be quotable. <laughs> just to do it with the lisp and everything, you know? I can't do the lisp, so I wouldn't be able to do his scenes. But I, I always laugh at, you know, everybody loves um, Indigo Montoya's speech. And it, it's wonderful. He does such a great job. But uh, one of the lines of his I always love is when he says, there's not a lot of money in revenge. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. little scenes like that are just really funny. Or uh, one of the words, one of the, one of the words, one of the quotes from him that I've used frequently is, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love it. And just to go to his, you know, his speech, the uh, my name is Indigo Montoya, blah, blah, blah. What's wonderful about that scene is the way it ramps up every time he says it. Mm-hmm. And and then he's just starting to scare Christopher Guest more and more and more. Yes. As it's just such a cool scene. Oh, and I want to mention there, it is such a fantastic scene. I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about Christopher Guest, um, he still has the six-fingered glove and the sword at his home. And he said he gets so uh, so much credit from his kids because they love bringing their friends over <laughs> to show them the six fingered <laughs> glove and the sword. So he, he's got this little, Oh, okay. I'm a cool dad. <laughs> That's that is cool. <laughs> uh, Wish I had but, stuff like that to show my kids. Uh, I love uh, Andre, the giant's line about uh, my ways, not very sportsmanlike. It's just, again, he's just so sincere. You know, he gets told that that's his way, and he's just like, well, I guess it is, but it's not very sportsmanlike. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't even have to work out. <laughs> I, I, I always loved his voice. It's just, I don't know, because it's just that big, deep, growling voice with a French accent. And one of the really interesting things is he, of course, English wasn't his native language, so... I remember that Rob Reiner recorded on audio cassette all of his lines. So he would walk around with that playing on his headphones to get his lines right and get used to saying his lines in English. And I just thought that was, you know, he wanted to do such a good job. And he, since English wasn't his first language, he wanted everything to be just right. And I just think that shows the care and dedication of him and the whole cast. They were just all so enthusiastic about this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting bit of trivia. I didn't know that. I knew French was his first language, but I thought he had picked up enough English 
from the uh, professional wrestling interviews to uh, you know to have been you know able to get through this without having to do that, but it's uh, I guess not. <laughs> I, I think it was where you know he wanted he was acting, so he wanted to make sure he said it just right so that it was right for the character. So I think that's what was important to him. So mm-hmm. and that was really important, and I'm, and I'm glad. And he does a wonderful job. Well, I get the feeling that that all of the actors in this movie kind of knew that they were on something special mm-hmm. and that they were, you know, really trying to bring their a game. And then I'm just, again, another, just another quote from uh, Wikipedia Pop- popular professional wrestler, Andre the giant had undergone major back surgery prior to filming. And despite his great size and strength could not support the weight of Carrie Elway's during the fight scene or Robin Wright for a scene at the end of the film. For the wrestling scene, when Elways was pretending to hang on Andre's back, he was actually walking on a series of ramps below the camera during close-ups. For the wide shots, a stunt double took the place of Andre. When he was apparently carrying right, she was actually suspended by cables. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's amazing. It's not surprising, though. I think when somebody's as, as humongous as he was, I think that puts yeah. a tremendous strain on your entire body. You know, it's, right. it's like what they talk about, like the dogs with Great Danes. They have a, oh, yeah. a, a shorter life expectancy because they're so large that it just puts a stress on their bodies. Yeah. It's sad when you think of it that way, but I think there's a reality to it, unfortunately. Absolutely. And it it is when you see the film, it's it's nice that you can't tell that. They did such a good job and took so much care. Uh, and it's nice that he was still able to uh, do the role. I'm glad he didn't have to bow out of it. I do know that if you, when you see it on the big screen, it, it's, you can see that one scene when it's in the distance and uh, Fezzik is uh, backing Wesley against the giant rock. When they show it from the full length scene, you can tell that it's somebody wearing an Andre, the giant mask. You mm. know, they made a mask, uh, but you have to look for it. It doesn't last very long, but usually you can't tell. Okay, so I guess it's time for me to say, Ruth, is this Jaws or is it Jaws 2? Because <laughs> it's not ah. Jaws 3 or 4. <laughs> Absolutely Jaws, no doubt about it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, she would actually have to create a new category to rate this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's kind of silly to even ask when you've already said it's your all-time favorite movie. That's true. I gave so, it away. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, let's, you know, giving it away, it's, I think, was the last time you went to see it on the big screen, you posted something on Facebook saying, going to see my all-time favorite movie. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's what made me say, hey, I need to ask you, you to come on and do this show. Well, you made her very happy when you asked. And you made her very happy when you uh, messaged us this morning. It's when I mentioned it to her, she said, yes, I can do that. Yeah, I can talk about <laughs> Princess Bride anytime. <laughs> well, but before we go on to Darren and my uh, ratings on it, do you have anything else you want to add about the movie? I would, I would just say how much I love the atmosphere and the magic that the movie creates and uh, the warmth that it gives to my heart when I watch it. So again, just going back to such an all time favorite movie of mine. So really fortunate to, to have this time to talk with you about it. The, mm. the thing she's forgetting, she's struggling to remember the one thing that she wanted to be sure and mention on this, which is uh, they had a 25th anniversary celebration for the oh. film. 
and all of the cast and crew got back together to watch the movie together. And they had such a wonderful time reminiscing about the film that Carrie Elwes left that and decided he wanted to write a book. So he actually wrote a book called As You Wish, which is memories from the film. And Ruth loves the audiobook version of it because it's read not only by Carrie Elwes, but he got all of the other people to read their parts of the book as well. So that's really this nice audiobook version. And he went on a book tour and convention tour, didn't he, Ruth, to promote oh. the book? Yes. <laughs> and I'm assuming you, you went and got an autographed version and got to meet I, him? I did. And he was gracious and appreciative of his fans. And it was just so fortunate to have met him and to have read that wonderful book. And she wore a T-shirt when she met him and got her photo taken with him. She's wearing a T-shirt that says... Inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> That's always great when, when you meet somebody who, you, who you've enjoyed their work so much and they live up to your hopes of, of, you know, with graciousness and, and class like that. Right. You can't always expect it, and when you get it, it's a treat. But when, when you when you have something like that, you know, you're talking the 25th anniversary. So you you at this point, you've lived with this movie, you know, for the majority of your life. And uh, like if you went and it turns out like he's a jerk, it really <laughs> just, you know, it just def it's so deflating. Right. So well, when, when so it works the other way, it's great. <laughs> yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> See, he was lovely. Yes. So uh, now, Darren, let's pretend Ruth's not listening. Okay. How you rate? How you rating this movie? <laughs> I I honestly would rate this as Jaws. It is a fabulous film. It's definitely in my top ten uh, movies of all time. I love every time I get a chance to watch it with Ruth. I'm more than happy to watch it. It may not be my number one movie, but it's certainly one of my all time favorites, and I'm always happy to see it. Okay, Very good well. answer. <laughs> oh, you know, we, we did last movie we did together was March of the Wooden Soldiers, which is one of my all-time favorites, and uh, I think Ruth ranked it as a Jaws two. Yeah, she she so, did. So, yeah. so it's it's like I have the ability to get revenge here. This is true. But, uh, but I have to say, worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> Retaliation. I have I have to say this this movie is nearly perfect. There's there's really I I can't take any aspect of this movie and criticize it. It's the acting is excellent. The cinematography is excellent. The soundtrack is really, really good. The the script is excellent. There's just every every aspect of it is really good. And it and even though you know, like you know, you said it wouldn't be in your top ten probably, or it would be in your top ten. It wouldn't be in my top ten, only because there's a lot of great movies out there. Yes. Uh, yes. But it but it's definitely, in my opinion, a great movie. And uh, despite my effort, my efforts to be just a jerk, I have to uh -huh. I have to rank it as yours. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm very happy that you did, Paul. Ruth Ruth has a sense of relief. But just so you'll know, I berated her for days <laughs> over her not giving March of the Woods. <laughs> Well, did you force her to watch it again at least? She she was in the doghouse. <laughs> <laughs> I told her, I said, it's good that you're honest. I'm glad you can be honest. You're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really the bottom line, isn't it? That's what I always say. I, I, I you know actually to be you know really honest about it is I always respect everybody else's opinions if they're well thought out. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you, you know, you give the movie a fair shot and you say, you know what, to me, it's not a perfect movie. It's not yours. Okay. You know, as long as, as long as you, you know, it's not just, 
you know, it's, it's like if you were one of these people who just says, oh, it's an old movie and it's in black and white, so uh, it can't be Jaws, then I then I don't have as much respect for your opinion. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> now you've got the right approach. I appreciate it. So, so that'll that'll be it for the Princess Bride this time around, and. I do know that I will be speaking to my friends again, and I don't know what movie we're going to do. So I'm going to ask you two to think about it. Think of what you want to cover next and let me know, and we'll uh, we'll get together again because I always enjoy talking to you. That would be wonderful, Paul. We can't wait already, so thank you. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. All right, and we'll go out on that. Or actually, no, you know what? I'm not going out on that because uh, before we sign off, uh, why don't you tell everybody where they could find you? Oh, thank you. All right. So um, we do a large number of podcasts now. It's getting <laughs> larger every day over at the Rad Adventures Network, which Rad is short for Ruth and Darren. Uh, we And first off is Trekker Talk, and that's the one we started out with about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall. And we do Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs comic Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. And, of course, there's Warlord Worlds where we talk about the comics by Mike Grell. And a couple of new ones that we've just started recently, Sensational Sleuths, where we talk about some of our favorite mysteries. The first episode was about Sherlock Holmes and Fantastic Fantasies, where we talk about our favorite fantasy films. The first one is about the books of J.R.R. Tolkien, and we've got another one coming soon. And if you want to give us a listen, just look out for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And at RadAdventuresNetwork.com. Yeah, and that's, that's what I would say is your best way to do it is just go to Rad Adventures on iTunes and you get the feed for all of them. Thank you so much, Paul. No problem. Thank you guys for coming on and thank you for spending a little time with me. Wonderful. This was fun. Thank you. The Princess Bride premiered in September 1987 and performed well at the box office, bringing in two times what it costs to make. But it was the film's second life on video and cable that transformed this fairy tale romance into an all-time classic. People are just so just just in rapture uh, about the movie and how much it meant to them growing up. It's strange. People do have a almost hysterical feeling about the movie. They do, all ages. It lives in people's minds. Yes, you people know. are always. Yeah, yeah, things yeah. And, and stopping you. And well, the real, the, the ones you really appreciate will catch on to a, a smaller line, not just have fun storming the castle, which I still get all the time. But I'll, I'll be eating a sandwich. Just actually happened like two days ago. I was having a sandwich, and a guy comes up to me and says, "Is it nice and lean? <laughs> Is it lean?" <laughs> and then you know you got it. He's like a little special. Then you spend yeah. more time with him. Yeah. You know? There we go. Great. Thirty years later, people are still talking about The Princess Bride, and the film remains as popular as ever. Yes. I think Princess Bride lives on because it's such a timeless tale. There's nothing about it that, when you watch it now, feels dated. I have a lot of people who say, I watched it with my parents when I was little, Mm -hmm. and now I can't wait to show it to my kids. Yeah. Which is a, an extraordinary testament, I think, to the lasting charm of the movie and the fact that it operates on so many different levels. The children love it for one reason, the, the adults. And, and as you get older, you start getting the sophisticated humor a little bit more and you start understanding that there is a sort of satiric side to it as well. Uh, it, it's a movie that, that evolves as you grow, which is really interesting to me. Uh, it was, for me, the most perfect job ever. Great material, amazing director, phenomenal cast, 
genius studio, three days, no one ever saw my face. There we go, great. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs>